Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, I've been doing a lot of crazy computer reorganization the last couple weeks, so things have been a little tight on, uh, in Shelton land. But uh, if you've seen my recent podcasts with uh, Jeff Wassel, then uh, you know that I'm uh, collaborating with him and also with uh, another uh, never-in-but-professional-financial-analyst person who's very interested in Scientology, a man named uh, John P., or as you know, he goes by John P. Capitalist. And, uh, and we might be doing some interesting collaborations in the near future regarding uh, some Scientology analysis and also something that is a... Uh, something I've been thinking about doing a video or some work on uh, for a very long time, which is uh, a, a sort of a niche part of Scientology, which is called the Data Series. And this was a series of policies Hubbard wrote on how to think and what logic and reason is. <laughs> and for obvious reasons, I would take that on. And um, John P. has been a little interested in this subject as well. And so we're going to maybe do some collaborative work in this direction before I go releasing some one-off video about it. Instead, we're, um, you know, maybe looking at doing a deeper analysis of this. So I think that might uh, give some insight. I think the, the, the main um, use of something like that would not be just to, you know, have something else to uh, giggle or look at about Scientology that's ridiculous, but it actually gives a bit of an insight into how L. Ron Hubbard thinks and how he expected Scientologists to think, and how he actually tried to train them to do so. And I think that might be very enlightening for a lot of people. So, that's something to look for in the not-too-distant future. Uh, so let's go ahead and get on with answering your questions for the immediate future of this week. Uh, here we go. Billy Bob. In the ethics system described in Scientology with the eight dynamics, self, family, group, mankind, etc., why are the higher dynamics more valued in Scientology and the first and second disregarded when all dynamics are important for survival? Hence, the church forces violation of its own ethics system. Is there a name or label for this ethical system and from where did it did Elrond steal it? Thanks for the question. Um, there will be a video coming out on all of a full scope of Scientology ethics in my Basics of Scientology series, but that's a ways away, so I thought I'd bring up this question now. Uh, Scientology ethics is based on the utilitarian ethics system, and this is something that's been along for a long time. Um, definitely back to the 1800s as far as uh, something that was, you know, as a philo philosophical uh, argued ethical system, um, but I think it goes much earlier than that, as, as most things do. Um, and I don't know specifically where Hubbard might have gotten the idea that that was a great way to uh, go about making decisions. It's, it's basically, the, the basic philosophy is greatest good for greatest number, right? And that which does the least harm to the most, you know, number, um, that's how you should be making ethical decisions, which sounds great, but it is very, very relative. Very much depends on your point of view as to what is the greatest good. It depends on your values, your culture, your belief system. I mean, there's all kinds of things that enter into uh, what, you know, decides what is a good or a bad decision. And that's why I call it a relative, you know, it's relative. 
Um, depend, you know, relate, you know, depends on one person or another. Anyway, um, I don't know where Hubbard came up with that yet. I'll, I'll find out when I, when I do my research for that video. As far as uh, why Scientology values the higher dynamics, though, um, specifically the third dynamic, okay, and if you've seen my Basics of Scientology series, then you know that I did a video on the eight dynamics, and if you haven't seen that, go watch it, because it's pretty interesting, <laughs> and the third dynamic being groups, and Scientology is a group. So Scientology, of course, because its ethics system is a relativistic system that depends on the point of view of the person making the decisions, Scientology as an entity is going to decide that something is good or bad in direct relation to how much it benefits Scientology. And not necessarily how much it benefits its individual members, which is when, and that part of the decision making process is one of the reasons why Scientology is labeled a destructive cult because it chooses itself over its membership 100% of the time. This is why Sea Org members can be worked to death, worked until they just cannot, you know, they're, until they're broken people and they can't work anymore, and then they're just cast aside because, you know, they, they, they martyred themselves for the greater good, right? But it didn't do them personally any good at all. Uh, this was one of the decision points of me leaving the Sea Org was, you know, 17 years later, and I'm nowhere up the Scientology bridge. I'm not happy. I'm not a happy camper, so to speak, as a Scientologist or as a Sea Org member. And so I hit the road a lot, but I stayed for as long as I did because I thought I was contributing to something bigger than me and that I was contributing to the greater good. But I came to you know, find after, you know, doing this for so many years that I couldn't, it wasn't balancing out and it wasn't really ethical for me to continue to do that because it was becoming very obvious to me that I was sacrificing myself. Not such a good ethical decision for me. Um, Scientology encourages this kind of behavior though, uh, one, because they're a destructive cult and they're only, you know, and it's a con and they're in it for the money. Um, but all destructive cults push group over individual, right? Uh, and they, they do that because it serves the interest of the cult leader the, or leadership, if it's more than one person. Uh, that person's needs and wants will never be up, up for grabs or questioned or in question or, uh, or at, you know, the, the leader will never be asked to make big sacrifices for the group, the leader will say he's making tremendous sacrifices for the group. The leader will say and assert how they're working harder than everybody else, how they are more deeply committed than everybody else, how they are in the, at the vanguard of the, of the movement's forward progress, right? Uh, but with destructive cults, none of those things end up actually being true when you look deeper into the details of it. You find out, for example, with Scientology that David Miscavige is leading the, living the easy life. He's got no problems. He's got no worries, really, other than, you know, when things get a little hot and, and in the, on the legal front, he starts worrying a bit then. But as far as the membership of Scientology goes, as far as the work of it goes, eh, whatever. You know, he's got all the time in the world to put out another release or do whatever he's going to do in, in, in ruling that that movement and that organization. And, um, and he doesn't want for anything. 
the individuals who provide him with the money and the resources and the energy to be able to do that, they're, sat they're making all kinds of sacrifices. They're not seeing family. They're not seeing friends. They're not even making friends in the outside world. They're not, uh, they're giving up over their money. They're giving over their time. They're, you know, they're making tremendous amounts of sacrifices, but they're doing it because they're being told that not only is it the greatest good, I mean, they're being told that, but they're being told that uh, they will also be repaid in spades later. Okay, you know, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today, right? It's sort of the, the, the sales line that Scientology uses, right? But instead of next Tuesday, of course, they mean after you're dead is when you'll get the big payoff because you'll have personal spiritual immortality, right? You'll, you'll, you'll continue to be aware and alive and, and, uh, and knowledgeable about the things that have happened to you in this lifetime and, and in your future lifetimes because you'll be freed from this endless cycle of birth and death and birth and death that they believe in. So there is, you know, it's not all just sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice, okay? This is, a, this is an important part of the answer to the question is Scientologists are making all these sacrifices because they believe that they're going to be paid off big time in the future, okay? Um, and, they, and they believe that it's going to happen actually. I mean, I was a little tongue-in-cheek there with the after they die thing because they do believe that those payoffs will come in the here and now. They believe that by doing Scientology and going up this grade chart or this bridge to total freedom, they will achieve higher spiritual states of awareness and ability. Uh, and more than just being able to get, uh, you know, a, a good parking spot or remembering, you know, figuring out where their keys are hidden away, uh, they believe that they will be able to influence the factors of their life in a positive way. In other words, they believe that they will be at cause over their life. Now, the truth is that these benefits never really come about. They're, they're really no different after 10 years in Scientology and moving on up that bridge than they were the day they walked in. They might have relieved some stress or trauma or solved some of the problems of their life, but they're not, you know, higher spiritual beings or something like that. That's, there's no evidence or proof of that at all. And, um, and so that, you know, but that's what they think is going to come, okay? And that's why on the promise and the hope of there being something wonderful and great, if they just make these sacrifices now, you know, they continue to do that. And of course, that only goes on. You can only, you know, play someone for so long. It's kind of a, um, I mean, it's not a Ponzi scheme, but it's kind of like that. You know, you're making promises and then, you know, you get a little bit of payoff, but you never really get the full amount. And then you kind of keep going on the idea that maybe you'll get more. And eventually, you know, they always fall apart because there's, because they're not giving back as much as the people are giving in. And that's really, in the end, why it's not a good thing to get involved in. If it was, you know, if it, it, making sacrifices is not necessarily an inherently bad thing to do. There's lots of good things to make sacrifices for. But when there's no return on that investment, when the promises are false promises and, the, and, and you're being actively lied to and deceived, that's when those sacrifices are not so worthwhile. And that's the deal with Scientology. Laura, in your recent podcast with John Atack, it really struck me when you mentioned kids being brought up to be obedient versus 
thoughtfully rebellious, or whatever term it was that you used. I was raised Christian, lots of rules, took 40 years to completely get out, was of course taught to be polite, I think I am generally considered to be a nice person, and this is a serious problem. Though most people would probably view me as a strong, independent sort, I've come to recognize that, because I'm generally surrounded by kind people, I don't have much capacity to deal with strong, unwanted pressure. It seems that if someone is willing to go outside the norms of typical polite behavior, they have a degree of control over the more polite people, because we are trained to be pleasers. I had a brief experience that brought this realization home, and it was such a small, stupid thing, nothing like what you guys dealt with in Scientology. I was at the mall and fell prey to a super aggressive salesman at one of those kiosks. I paused politely and reached for a little free sample he proffered. He grabbed my arm, pulled me in, and I was trapped there with a hard sell for 15 minutes. He just kept after me with question, slash benefits, slash sales, slash special deals, one after another after another. I was incredibly uncomfortable, but I couldn't figure out how to extricate myself. I almost bought an expensive special deal just for you from him just to escape. Fortunately, I deflected, resisted, insisted 10 plus times that I would check the reviews online myself, made my 30th excuse, and finally left. After the experience, I was so angry, not at him, but at myself. Why did I put up with it when I was so uncomfortable? Why wasn't I able to be stronger and just leave like I wanted to? I really hope it's a lesson learned and that I'll do better next time I'm facing unusual pressure, whether in a sales situation or otherwise. But I always recall this experience when you talk about people being convinced to join Scientology or give money or etc. If I was so susceptible with this minor thing, how would I do if someone were pressuring me even harder? Probably not very well, I'm thinking. You've mentioned how you would hard sell people into Scientology and how the church practices extreme sales techniques both in recruiting and on both its members. And of course, these techniques are used in the wider world too. Could you sometime explore proactive ways to resist pressure from your own experience? Do you think it simply comes down to a willingness to be rude? Are there other techniques to learning resistance, perhaps without going so far as to subject oneself to bull baiting? Thanks, Laura. This is a good question, and it's definitely a subject that a lot of people could use some help with, so I, I thought I would try to take a stab at, at, at this. Uh, when people go outside the normal or the norms of civilized, polite behavior in order to sell you something, right? You were making this, this point or this case that, you know, you're being grabbed by the arm, you're being pulled in, you know, this is somebody violating your personal space, this sort of thing, in order to be aggressive and hard sell you. And of course, this happens because we have, there are so many things in the world that, that people want to sell you. So many, ad, you know, we're overwhelmed with advertising and, and offers for things that we just kind of put up our screens and go blind to it because we don't want to, we're just overwhelmed by it. It's not that those products or services are not things we, I'm sure a lot of those things we want, but there's just so much of it. And we're in, you know, we're definitely in this age of information. We are overloaded with information, and it's and it's more than we can, than any of us can process. I I challenge anyone out there to be able to take everything in that is being thrown at you all day long. So, all of us have our um, you know varying levels of attention that we can give to things, and some of us are you know just just don't want to go there, and yet 
There are instances like this case in the mall or with Scientology salespeople on the street trying to give you a personality test and body route you over to a table where they will sit you down and put you on an e-meter and figure out what your stress is. And of course, with a lot of people, their stress is that they're being body routed to sit down at a table when they don't want to be there. Um, but getting back to answering this question specifically, I think that you are perfectly justified and it's completely acceptable that you simply get up and walk away uh, or say, no, I don't want this and turn around and walk away because they are going beyond the norms of civilized polite behavior in their, in their aggressive sales tactics. You are completely justified in going beyond polite, normal behavior on your own or what you might think would be norm, you know, normal polite behavior to negate their sales tactics by simply and very, very certainly and very, very clearly saying, I ain't interested and proceeding to walk away. You don't owe that person anything. And that's the thing is we're, we're sort of raised to, you know, be polite, to listen to people, to try to understand them, to try to show compassion or empathy. I mean, these are, these are considered good traits in, our, in, in Western society. And, um, and, I, and normally I'm all for that sort of thing in voluntary social interaction. But in involuntary social interaction, the same rules don't necessarily apply which is not to say that you have to be a jerk, right? They're already being the jerk, right? You don't have to meet, you know, kind with kind. You don't have to be antagonistic about it or violent about it or anything like that unless circumstances get ramped up and then you, then you have to be more aggressive about it. Um, but normally, if you just, you know, you just go, no, and you just walk away. It's, it's not a matter of having to worry about the salesman's feelings or, you know, them taking it personally or something like that because they're doing a job and they are trained to do their job by whoever hired them a particular way. They won't make money, they won't, they won't keep that job if they don't perform the way that the sales managers or executives who hired them want them to. So it's not like you're, it's not even necessarily that you're dealing with somebody who wants to treat you that way. That's just how they're expected to act. And, you know, unfortunately, um, we run across that all the time. And when we do, you know, just, just say no. <laughs> That's about the best advice I can give because it's really the most effective. Fran Bridge. I was reading the comments on a recent post over on Mike Rinder's blog. L. Ron Hubbard, Messiah or Hypnotic Operator. There was an interesting discussion about how sympathy and empathy are seen in Scientology and how that differs from the world outside. I'd be interested in your take on that and how it impacts relationships between Scientologists. I believe that people form deep bonds when they are immersed in a dangerous or destructive environment. I'm sure that's true in Scientology, but I wonder if this control and change of the language impacts that. Thanks, Fran. And uh, yeah, the language and thought reform that occurs in Scientology, you know, the change of, of people's minds using language, 
uh, is especially evident when it comes to sympathy and empathy in the world of Scientology. Ellen Hubbard very specifically states that giving sympathy to someone is the least effective thing you can do in order to help them when they are in some sort of a situation. And instead, what you should be doing is applying Scientology directly to them, either by auditing them or by somehow, you know, giving them a Scientology assist or by teaching them some Scientology or getting them to read a book or something like that, whatever, you know, whatever the would be most applicable to the circumstances. Obviously, some guy's bleeding out on the road, you're gonna treat the, you know, the, the, the bleeding. I mean, it's not, it, it, let's not take this to, you know, ridiculous extremes, but here we're talking about when somebody is depressed, anxious, angry, upset, um, is in some kind of life, you know, trauma or problem or situation where they are concerned or, or you know, worried about something. Instead of sympathizing with that person, oh, and this also applies, by the way, to grief-stricken people, people who have suffered a loss of some kind or had some devastating uh, trauma, and they've, and they've, you know, as of course, have now don't have a husband or a wife or a kid or something like that. Uh, Hubbard said that, you know, just, just, just consoling them or sympathizing with them or trying to empathize with them, yeah, not it, only if you can't do anything else because basically that's not really helping the person. You know, Hubbard said that sympathy and empathy um, come from, you know, simpatico, right? Like you're trying to, um, you know, relate to this person's emotional state by showing you also are in a down emotional state or you're, you know, empathizing with them by speaking softly, consolingly, you know, uh, maybe patting them on the on the back or the shoulder, somehow making physical contact to try to ease the pain of the loss that they're experiencing, let's say, with a grief-stricken person. Um, and he said, that's all nice, but it doesn't, it doesn't address the cause of the problem. And Hubbard was all about finding the causes of the problem and addressing that and thereby making the problem go away. And that actually, that approach is the problem with Scientology because some things are not a problem that have a source that you need to isolate and deal with and make it go away and then the person won't feel that way anymore. That's not how life works uh, with things like loss or grief or trauma. Something happened and you can't undo what happened. You can't change it. You can't modify it even. You can't do anything about it. You have to deal with that. And uh, to say that a person is grieving because they lost their father, but really the true source of the grief is because they lost their you know, uncle when they were five, and actually the true source of the, of the grief from that is because they lost their you know, Uncle uh, Iggywad 20,000 million years ago, and that's the source of the problem of the grief, and if we could just address that traumatic incident 23,000 million years ago, then you'll feel better about, you know, your uh, Uncle Mike dying now. I mean, that's, that's stupid. That's just not, that's not how it works. <laughs> but that's what I, that's how Scientologists believe it works, right? That's how I believed it works, is that every single emotion you experience or problem you have or trauma or stress you're experiencing has some kind of source 
in a not in, in in part of your mind, your reactive mind is how Hubbard calls it, that simply needs to be extricated, like like surgically removed. And if you do that, you'll no longer feel bad. Well, that's you know, th there's nothing in Scientology about uh, effectively dealing with. The loss of someone, or the, or, or, or you know, the grief you experience, or the other emotions I described. Right? This I'm talking. I've been kind of harping on this grief thing, but it also applies to other, you know, other situations where there are what Hubbard calls misemotion, right? Negative emotions: grief, anger, uh, guilt, apathy, you know, sorrow. These kinds of things. So. Uh, so the whole thrust of what Scientologists are indoctrinated in is that that's how you're supposed to deal with those things. You're not supposed to console people or, or empathize with them. Uh, and that's really kind of has, has a lot of different consequences within the world of Scientology. And the more, the higher you get in Scientology as far as your commitment to it, the more your life is going to be ruled by this kind of thinking. Uh, sea Org members, for example, are are known for being extremely unsympathetic. They could care less, right? Uh, when I was a Sea Org member, I was like, you know, nose to the grindstone. I was like moving on my mission, and there was just, you know, nothing really was going to get in the way of that. So if somebody was, you know, upset or had some issue or problem, to me that was like a petty foible. It was like a okay, whatever, you know. It's like let's let's move on. You know, when it comes to death and dying, for example, Scientologists could care less, really, because, I mean, they, I should say, individual Scientologists will have to experience the stages of grief or upset or have to go through that process, but the attitude of the group, okay, is that that loss doesn't really matter that much because we're all immortal spiritual beings and he's just going off to get another body or she, or whoever it was who passed on, right? Uh, not a big deal, right? The, the whole indoctrination is that this life and the things you own, and including your body, not that important. Really not a big deal. And maybe that might be, you know, a, a not-so-horrible perspective to have in the bigger picture sometimes. But on the other hand, I, I value my body. <laughs> I value my things, right? And when I was in Scientology, I didn't. That's why I don't have a lot of keepsakes and mementos and possessions from my, you know, from early in my life or from when I was in the Scientology, in Scientology and in the Sea Org. I didn't keep stuff, right? Because it was, uh, it was just not very important. And uh, of course, now that I've left, you know, my attitudes about that have changed. And I am not saying that you, you know, that it's healthy to want things and not healthy to not want things. What I'm trying to make the point about here is that it should be your decision. And it should be up to you how you want to address and, and deal with uh, the problems and, and, and bumps in the road of life, right? And you shouldn't be told those things don't matter when to you they do. Uh, and you shouldn't be told that, you know, those things are unimportant when they are important to you and they do matter to you, right? That's kind of the point I'm trying to make is it's kind of everybody has to deal with it their own way. And in Scientology, it's an enforced thing that... Uh, your problems and issues are not important. Uh, just the only thing that really matters is Scientology. David Bates. I have a question about Scientology that came up after your critical Q&A number 145 that I just watched. It was about people and disabilities. 
I took a bullet through my knee in Vietnam in 69, which took out my kneecap and left me somewhat disabled. According to Scientology, did I want this bullet to hit me or pull it in or whatever they call it? I am curious as I have noticed some strange happenings at my local VFW and American Legion with people wanting to talk about PTSD and Narconon. I know it is a Scientology-run thing and I want to help protect my fellow brothers. Knowing what they think about my wound would help me to deal with it. Wow, okay, well, um, thank you for this question and yeah, let me address this head on. Um, so I, I don't have the direct quote here, and I didn't look it up, but there is a quote Hubbard writes about responsibility. It comes from a book called Advanced Procedure and Axioms, which he wrote, I think, in 1953, and uh, 52, I think it was late 52, sorry. And, um, and in that book, he says that you are responsible for every single thing that ever happened to you. In fact, you're responsible for everything that happened anywhere at any time to anyone. So, uh, he makes the point in the book about how you're responsible for um, someone getting shot in a, battle, in a battlefield somewhere uh, that you've never been, in some country you've never been in, right? Uh, and you're, uh, or, uh, the, the, sorry, that the soldier there is responsible for getting shot. He's also responsible for the selective service and for the war and for everything about it, right? So that's kind of the bottom line position with Scientology is that anything that happens to you, it's on you, bud, okay? Uh, that is very, very clear in Hubbard's scriptures and you can, uh, or writings, I should say. I really shouldn't call them scriptures. Anyway, in Hubbard's writings, he, he talks about that. And that is the attitude in Scientology. So as far as, you know, your situation, you were responsible for being there. You were responsible for getting shot because you were there, if for no other reason. And you're responsible for how you go about dealing with that, right? Uh, and of course, that's, that's Scientology. That's not me talking, okay? I don't think those things, but that's what I used to think when I was in Scientology. Um, so the fact that they are promoting Narconon to you guys uh, at the, um, you know, to the veterans really bothers me uh, because you guys should stay as far away from that as you can. Uh, there's another video I made about the purification rundown, uh, which is just total pseudoscience. I think that's called the pseudoscience of the purification rundown or something. You can look it up on my channel here and that'll tell you everything you need to know about the efficacy and, and usefulness of of uh, Scientology's Narconon program because that purification rundown is the, the heart of it. And you don't want to have anything to do with that. It is medically dangerous and even potentially fatal. So that's what I want to say about that. But as far as arguing against uh, you know disabilities, yeah, Scientology takes a very dim view on that. Now, they're going to tell you other things. Right? They're not going to tell you, they're not going to admit to this in a social situation or when they're trying to make good with you guys or trying to, uh, you know, get into the VA or something, right, with this, with this Narconon program. They're not going to admit these things up front. They're not going to look at you and say, oh, pff, you're responsible for that, bud. Right? You're not, you're not going to hear that, right? You got to dig into the books to, to find the beliefs and, the, and, the, and Hubbard's books, right? Um, but you can be sure that that is what they think. All right. They also don't admit to being, you know, homophobic, but believe me, they are. So you're going to hear all kinds of social songs and dance about how, you know, you guys got a bum rap and a bum deal and they're just there to help you guys. 
and you know you should really take part in this program because it's such a good thing for you and those you know some of those uh, drugs that they're giving you are not so good right well maybe some of those drugs they're giving you aren't truly so good and maybe other drugs that they're giving you are just what you need but just because they might be right about a couple things doesn't mean they're right about this okay so I want to be clear about that, right? They might make a few good points in their sales pitch, but that doesn't mean that the product they're selling is any good. It is very, very bad. All right. I think I made my point there. If, um, if you have any other questions about this or any other part of their, their sales pitch or whatever else is going on there, please feel free to uh, you know, leave comments for me about this and I will take them up in future episodes because I definitely want to help in any way I can to make sure that Scientology is not making inroads into the, the VA or veterans uh, aid in any way. Marnie Sanders, are all or most independent Scientologists are what has been termed Hubbard apologists? The simple answer to the question is yes. Uh, an apologist is defined as someone who makes rationalizations or arguments in favor of something that is deemed controversial or potentially harmful or something like that, uh, or at least it's controversial. And in the case of Scientology, you can definitely say that it's got some controversy connected with it, especially when it comes to whether Hubbard's techniques and methods are any good or not. I'm on the side of saying that they are not. I'm, I have certainly said that they have provided benefit to some people, and I do see that, and I do believe that that is true, but that doesn't mean that they should be promoted or used because there are other techniques and methods you can find out there that are even more useful and more better for you without the authoritarian trappings and framework that Scientology inevitably brings into the mix. It's built into the DNA of it. So you can't really get away from any of that. And uh, that's why I don't, you know, use or practice any Scientology in my own life. And I encourage others to, who leave Scientology to just drop it like a bad habit. Uh, so independent Scientologists always have to defend their practices, even if they, you know, they, maybe they're taking a little bit of Scientology, maybe they're taking a ton of Scientology. They have to, you know, they are always questioned about that when they run into people like me or, you know, on social media. And they, and they so act as apologists. So, yeah, that's, that's really the answer to the question. And that lightning indicates it is time for flash answers. Marco Stacy, Hey, Chris, I've been dying to know. Why does Scientology write handwritten letters by mail rather than type? I could never read the writing and just plain odd. Thanks. Because not everybody in a church of Scientology has access to a computer and printer. Uh, really. But they all got pens and paper and pencils. I have seen letters written on the backs of flyers. Uh, I have seen like, pencil written <laughs> letters. Because for them, all that matters is the outflow. They don't care if they're actually, you know, necessarily personally reaching you when they write you a letter. They're just trying to get letters out the door because they figure the more they get out, that will turn into somebody walking in the door. Some missed, it's a magical, it's magical thinking is what it is, but that's the policy Hubbard wrote, so that's what they believe. Thunder Broom Pilot. You have to comment on the Scientology Super Bowl ad. I actually did write a little blurb for Tony Ortega's blog on this. I thought that it was the most amazingly genius commercial Scientology has ever put out, and I hope they continue to run it 
for years. I think it's a brilliant commercial. And I think everyone who watches that commercial, who has any questions about Scientology, should absolutely Google it. And let's see what they find. Laura Llewellyn. Does the Church of Scientology keep emergency supplies for staff and Sea Org members? If there was a natural disaster, would there be basic supplies such as food, water, and first aid supplies available? In the local churches, at the city level churches, no, not really, not, not much at all. They have first aid kits, but that's about it. At the Sea Org bases, they were supposed to, but that, um, you know, like when Y2K came around in the year 2000, we stocked up big time on water and uh, food and supplies in anticipation of something potentially bad happening when New Year's rolled around. After nothing bad happened, you know, the water sort of got used and the supplies sort of disappeared and, and uh, you know, we didn't really have anything like that anymore. So I think if, uh, if some disaster were really to strike, a Scientology or Sea Org base would not be a place where you would want to go for uh, supplies or safe haven. Okay, and that is our show for this week. Thanks for coming around, guys. I hope you found this entertaining, informative, and interesting. <laughs> um, please leave any comments or questions in the comment section below, and I will eventually see all of them. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.